Welcome to the Impact Innovation Podcast, the show where we sit down with entrepreneurs from different pockets of the world and they share with us what they're doing to make a difference. I'm James Digby and alongside me, our co-host for season one, Michael Waits, will be bringing you deep dives and a spotlight into what's happening on the ground in the world of impact innovation in Southeast Asia. The sessions will be taking wild detours whilst giving insights into how to build and scale an impactful business that has the ability to change the lives of the next 3 billion. In this exclusive episode, we catch up with Stéphane Rousseau, a French native living in Bangkok. He shares with us his experiences from the time at the Global Fund in Geneva and how it presented many ethical and moral challenges along the way. Even with all the good work done, he recalls that it's hard to think back without remembering the ones that were not helped or the people left behind. It's a touching episode that reminds us about the human aspect of impact innovation, and we're excited to share this story with you alongside Michael and our special guest co-host, Daniel McFarlane. We hope that you enjoy the show. Hi, it's Michael Waits. Today I'm joined by Daniel McFarlane. Daniel's going to help me have a conversation today with Stefan Rousseau, so I'll let them both introduce themselves. Daniel, why don't you start? Thanks, Michael. Um, yeah, I'm Daniel McFarlane. I am um, an adjunct lecturer at Thomasart University. Uh, I did my PhD from the, at the Australian National University. Great. And um, I spent the last nearly 20 years in this part of the world. Uh, so I've been working with Stefan over the last couple of years, so I'm really excited about having a chat with him today. So, Stefan, why don't you give us a little bit of background about you as well? Where are you from originally? Okay, thanks, Michael, for inviting me. Um, so, I'm also a professor at Thomasat uh, University. Um, after some 25 years of uh, work in, um, <clears throat> in the field of humanitarian work and development and international cooperation, and I've been in the region for some 33 years now. Well, that's a long time. It's almost like me. I've been in Asia for 28. It'll be 29 at the beginning of next year. It's been a while. What got you interested in doing humanitarian work? I would say first, uh, probably disillusion. <laughs> because I come from a very politicized society, you know, in France uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, when I was at the school. And I was so disillusioned by actually political parties, trade unions, and yet as most of the youth, you know, I wanted to do something for good, uh, for the good. And I could not believe actually in the political parties. I could not believe in those trade unions. And I saw the only window that I had to fulfill this kind of dream of doing something good with my life was actually to get into humanitarian work and human rights and things like that. So that's the way I engaged. And I was quite lucky that uh, at the time I was at the Faculty of Medicine, I heard about a new, brand new school that was starting in France, that's called Bioforce. Bioforce. And it's a, it's a school where you learn uh, at that time, at that time you were learning parachute and four-wheel drive and motorcycle, but also tropical medicine and economy of uh, developing uh, countries and so on. And I was so excited about that school, so I did the competition entry, and that's the way the adventure started. <laughs> what is it about... France that inspires people besides sort of the political issues that you were talking about earlier. I mean, isn't it in France as well where Doctors Without Borders were started? There seems to be something about France that inspires people to go out and do humanitarian work. Well, it's a very good question, actually. It's why indeed there is such a, how do you say, uh, why France in some aspects spearheaded humanitarian work? Well, you're right. I mean, in the 70s, you had this uh, group of French doctors, the famous French doctors, you know, 
Um, and it's very interesting to know why those specific French doctors react is actually because most of them were from Jew origins and they were so uh, shocked about what happened, you know, with the Shoah and all this thing because of their family. Then that when in, uh, in Nigeria, you know, the what we call the Biafra region, okay. uh, where actually it was apparent uh, the crisis, the humanitarian crisis that we had there was something that could not be dealt by the normal humanitarian uh, agencies and mostly actually the, the Red Cross. And that was something that they could not accept. So there's no way we're going to renew, re repeat the history, you know, and having again some new uh, uh, state-organized uh, massacres and we cannot uh, intervene simply because we are not within the, <coughs> the normal international legal framework, right? Because the the, the, the state refuse us to have access and then we're going to say, okay, let it go. So they decided to, to, and that's not for nothing that it's called without borders, is that borders were what was actually limiting uh, the intervention in sovereign countries and they say, sorry to say it this way, but the heck of it with that is that yeah. we will go. We will go because uh, this is just a priority. This is a humanity uh, priority and humanitarian priority. So it's not for nothing. It's quite interesting to know why actually those French doctors and what was the drive that they had behind. And of course, from that it is developed a lot. And it was mostly through the 70s and the 80s. And it was just lucky that it was at the time I was in my in my uh, teens and my 20s. And that was exactly the perfect time to get into humanitarian uh, field. Right. I mean, it seems like a, they've had a really great impact over time, right? That's still an ongoing concern, yeah? Doctors Without Borders. Oh, definitely, yes. And, it's and, a global institution. And actually, right? it's very interesting because, okay, you, you need to know that uh, borders without, uh, Doctors Without Borders is actually uh, now uh, so many branches, and, and they may have uh, actually different type of philosophies and approach. So it's quite interesting to see how it uh, actually uh, uh, varies by the countries. Um, but I would say the French branch of uh, Médecins Sans Frontières really kept the original idea of, uh, of Médecins Sans Frontières. For instance, they, want, they are extremely um, strict on the origin, the source of their funding to make sure that actually they are not getting too much of the institutional funding from either the French government or the EU so that they remain fully independent in their decision to intervene and not to simply satisfy whatever foreign policy uh, priorities of the government of the EU. So wherever they think that there is a humanitarian need, they will go, whatever the government will think. So this is something that they are very strong. They are always they need to ensure that in their running budget, they have more than 51% that come from actually donation and not from institutional uh, support or, yeah, or it's not, subsidize. It's not a big surprise to me that a group of doctors that decided what, you know, just the heck with it, we're going to go do this on our own, wanted to main, make sure that their activities remained independent from any sort of political concerns. Once you politicize an organization, it then becomes more difficult to do this sans frontières, right, without yes. the borders, because now you're more worried about inside this country, inside that country, who do we serve? And their idea, it always seemed to me, was we don't care. We're yes. here to help people. Yes, but there's one thing that uh, that's absolutely that you you, you summarized that very well. But this one major uh, change that occurred after the Cold War is that during the Cold War, you know what happened is that you often had this kind of situation with a war and a guerrilla, and then either side, either the USSR or the Americans, to make the story very very short. We're supporting either the government right. or the, the resistance. <coughs> or the rebels, the yes, 
Now, what happened is that after the Cold War, this ceased, of course, because we did not have this kind of tension, but that has huge consequences on humanitarian assistance because now you had nobody assisting either the guerrilla or the government, so now you have an economy of war that transformed, that turned the humanitarian assistance as praise, as a target to those guerrillas because of the economy of war it's extremely expensive you know to run a war so wherever now the resources will come from right. and of course uh, the trucks of humanitarian assistance are a very good example now that they are not assisted by either ussr one side or the other side so they will take the resources wherever they come from and now when you have a logo as a ngo or even icrc you know or even un logo it's becoming a target more than before it was a protection. Right, in the old days, it was almost like a bulletproof vest. Absolutely. You wear that thing that said UN staff on it, yes. and you were untouchable. Yes, but not anymore. But the bit has kind of flipped on that, right? Yes. So besides these political considerations and maybe some of these political frustrations, what other challenges and frustrations are there when you're doing this humanitarian work? And maybe you can give a couple of specific examples in this region Yes. for what makes things more difficult. I would say... And I guess most of my uh, humanitarian colleagues will say the same is the most the biggest frustration is first of all the resources are always limited compared to the needs that's obvious right. but uh, more importantly I would say is the instrumentalization of humanitarian assistance. What does that mean instrumentalization? Meaning that there are some powers would be very interested to actually use your humanitarian assistance for their own agenda. Right, so everyone's always trying to politicize this at yes. some level, right? Yes. Right, like so those guys is, and gals are working for me, Yes. even if you're not. Right. right. But the problem with that, you see, is that, and this is really, I would say, uh, not all humanitarian staff, let's say, even at the end of their career, will realize that. What it means is that you can very well do a perfect good job right. and feel very proud of what you've done without realizing that you have contributed to a cause that was actually wrong. Right. In other words, you were not there to facilitate the better presentation of one particular side or another particular side. And yet, because you don't have your own medium to respond to other people's commentary, you naturally get put into one category. These people from this humanitarian aid did this thing and that was awesome because we wanted that to happen, whereas you may not have been there to facilitate that political view or that government. Yeah, that's it. That when you are the humanitarian field, actually, you, you do pretty good job to save lives, and I, sure. that's, that's something that you certainly you will feel good, although we can come back to that, because <laughs> uh, this is a, a very wrong understanding that people may have sometimes of humanitarian work, because you say, oh, you must have good conscience that you're doing humanitarian and good. Absolutely not, because... It's exactly the opposite, you know. I always give the typical case, and this is something that could happen to me. You, you arrive on the place of an accident, and you have five very severely wounded people. You know they can take only three. Right. So you have to do the triage, and you take in your helicopter or in your truck or whatever, you take the three people thinking of the two that you let behind die. You think you feel good? No. No. So when people say, yeah, you, you do that because you want to feel good, yeah, I'm sorry, that's not what happened when you really do humanitarian work. But when I speak about uh, instrumentalization, is really that fact that in the ground, in the field, you can do some pretty good job, you can be extremely professional and fulfill your job perfectly well, yet you're contributing to a much bigger geo geopolitical plan that you, ha you had absolutely no say and no influence, and you may or you may not be on the wrong side. Right. And it's been but you see control <laughs> as well, right? Yes. Right. In other words, the most needy people 
maybe the people that are causing the biggest problems. Exactly, it could. But you're not there to make a value judgment of which human to say. Yeah, but that's another one. That's uh, okay, the Hippocrat uh, oath, Hippocrat right? Oath, right? But it's not, that's not exactly what I mean. Are you a doctor? Huh? Are you a doctor? No, no, I did, I did some medical study, but I'm not a medical doctor. Okay. So, um, but it's, it's beyond that. It's also the fact that you... Uh, uh, you may again. I don't. I, I will have to give some example. For instance, I, when I started, I was a prosthesis. So I would, I would teach um, workers, and I would make prosthesis for all those who stepped on mine. So right. amputees, and then wheelchairs and things like that. And well, we were working also in uh, Khmer Rouge camps, <laughs> and we knew, we knew yes on the Thai Cambodian border, and we knew very well that once we had equipped those uh, Khmer soldiers with the prosthesis, they will go back to fight. Right. And the Khmer Rouge soldiers, we know who, what they did. But you, as a humanitarian staff, you had to do the job, for sure. Uh, because you cannot let someone uh, without assistance. Uh, it's, yeah, so it's, most of the time, it's very difficult to get the broader picture when you are intervening in the field on humanitarian assistance and what people are trying to do with that situation, knowing that the very humanitarian assistance by itself might have been provoked on purpose for whatever geopolitical reason. So this is... This is very frustrating. So you mentioned earlier that you were a professor at Thammasat University, which is one of the premier universities in Thailand. What are you teaching there? Okay, so at first, uh, when I when I arrived, I was teaching human rights investigation. Human rights investigation. Yes, that's something I was doing with the UN for a while, um, and then from there I moved also. Uh, uh, I moved to teach uh, the introduction to social and behavioral uh, sciences to uh, uh, the Master of Global Health, uh, mostly medical doctors. And then I moved to uh, program management. And now I'm uh, in some other courses, but now I'm more focusing on boundary spanning, uh, my new uh, <laughs> favorite topic. Before we, before we get to boundary spanning, yes. which is interesting because I have no idea what that means, <laughs> so, so it has to be interesting <laughs> by definition. Um, you said you were originally teaching human rights investigation. Mm. What type of student was coming into that class and what were they expecting to learn and what was the impact you had on them? I'm really curious about a Thai student that comes into that class. You're teaching in English, right? Yes. So they must have some English language ability. They come in and they've signed up for a class and human rights investigation. Yes. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because actually this class was just so great. It's basically a mixed, a very international mix very big diversity in that class of international students, 50 to 60, 70 percent, depending on the years, are medical doctors already. Already. With, with quite some field experience from Africa, from Asia, from uh, uh, Europe, from US. It was absolutely uh, a, a very exciting class because a lot of good exchanges among these uh, very cross-cultural uh, students. And, uh, and it happened that, of course, the way I teach human rights is not through the legalistic uh, angle right. uh, perspective, because I'm not a lawyer. So um, that's something they really enjoyed also, because basically I was my whole course was not so much in uh, making sure that they knew by heart, you know, uh, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but they understand the mindset of right. how do you uh, uh, conceive human rights, how you can implement it. And, and also much more important for me was that they understand that actually whenever we speak about human rights, we're talking about dilemmas, mostly dilemmas. Right. And it's not black and white, and it's not like you have good and bad people, like some people would like to say. 
And it's mostly, you know, you know, the Milgram experiments and uh, Stanford uh, prison, although this one is very criticized now in terms right. of methodology. Right. But um, they are, my, my, one of the key messages, for instance, would say that people who commit human rights violation, the difference between someone who commits human rights violation and us is not a difference in nature, it's a difference in degree. In degree. Depending on which kind of pressure, which kind of situation you've been put on, you may yourself become also a human rights violation. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes think that the difference between good and evil is really subtle. Yes, indeed. Right? So my, I guess the real question for me is, every student is going to come into any class, whether it's calculus or human rights investigation with a bias. Yes, of course. Right? Of and course. I'm really interested in how you not change the bias, but identify the bias and sort of teach to that bias to let them know that they have a bias. They can think about things in a different way. Well, I can tell you one very funny way I'm doing is through my slides. Uh, the example I have, for instance, one day is that uh, <clears throat> I show uh, the picture where you see a, a child, obviously in a Muslim country, and they, they, he has to put his hand under the, the wheel of a big truck and they roll the, the truck over his arm. And then on the top uh, of, the, of the article of that uh, slide, they say, look at this uh, uh, Islamic uh, Sharia, look, uh, look at this. And then I started to have some of my students say, you should hang these people, they're bastards. You can imagine all what... Well, it's very lively. And then, then after that, I send them the, the, the next picture, which is the kid who is very perfectly okay, because actually it was a circus in Tehran, uh, market right so it was just a trick he probably put his right. hand you know in the tube that's the, and that's the and then, bias i was talking well about. the bias was that people will not try to immediately uh understand they will immediately think hey, it's because of the sharia or well, whatever or, but everybody like i said everyone comes in with the bias right and whether it's an islamic bias or a jewish bias or a christian bias it doesn't matter Absolutely. everybody has their bias yes. right and you walk in and it's a good um mechanism to show them here's something that you think it is yes you've already decided right that's what prejudging is that's what prejudice is you expose their prejudice and say actually no yes. and i do this sometimes with my daughter just to point out that that prejudice you have to know you have it. it's okay mm-hmm. we all have it but self-awareness in that case it's very important. And if you can identify your own prejudices, it then stops you Absolutely. from crossing that subtle line between goodness and evil. Because you're like, wait a second, I think this already. Yes. But actually, what I think is true, what is actually true is not. And that's really important. I'm completely on that line. And actually, to, to go further on that, is that one thing that I really, really uh, insist in, in the course is you know, this empathic approach, empathic Absolutely. approach to make sure that uh, uh, I ask them to get themselves in the shoes of the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, they are a little bit shocked at, the, at first. How can you be? And the point is that it's only if they try and they try sincerely to try to put themselves in the shoes of the perpetrator when they can start understanding exactly where it comes from and why he did that. And the point is that we can never justify a human rights violation that we can understand. Right. And once we understand it, then now we can prevent it. Right. So punishing just doesn't lead to nothing, doesn't help in any way. And that's the problem I see with uh, teaching human rights on the legal, legalistic perspective, is that people will mostly see the, the punishing part. So you have violated human rights, so you ought to be punished, and that's it. And right, then how do we solve In other words, you've driven that truck over that little boy's arm, and you need to be punished. Yeah. But what if I'm the guy in the circus? 
okay. Well, now I'm not committing any kind of human rights violation. You have to understand the um, the perspective, but also the framework around which any particular event is happening. I like to take, like, I like to minimize the universe and say, what if there are just two homes in the entire universe, yours and your neighbor's? And if your neighbor kills your father and you retaliate and then you kill their son, and then they burn down your house. Like, when does it stop? Yes, right. And that's the genesis of a lot of human rights violations mm-hmm. at some level, not yes. all of them for sure. But once you explain that, then you get a much better perspective on why these things are happening. Legalistically, you're like, you shouldn't kill that person. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But, but they killed my sister. That's it. You know, interestingly, uh, the famous, uh, you know, how do you call that in English? Italian law or the law of Italian, you know, where actually... Uh, so an eye for an eye, I think you right. say in English. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and the thing that is quite interesting is that actually that law of Italian is actually already something to moderate what was happening before. It's basically before it was ah you kill my daughter I'm going to kill your whole family. Right. And then it was coming you know it was <laughs> ne- not only it was never ending but it was it was getting exponential. It's just uncontrollable when the, actually the law of the Italian, which now we may consider as a little bit barbaric or whatever, the fact is that actually it was reducing the impact of the previous justice uh, right. system, right? But when you say about two houses, I like that because it, it brings also another point is that when it comes to human rights violation, especially you, when you sometimes you hear some cases and unfortunately I have witnessed a number of cases that you won't believe that this happened, uh, how on earth can that happen? And, and I was asking that question to so many of, uh, of friends, including my professor in La Sorbonne in Paris. And his answer is, was quite straightforward. He said, it's all in the we. So when it's we, okay, the community, and, uh, and then there's we and them. So there are already two groups. And I know you're an anthropologist, so you, <laughs> you will see exactly what I mean. But what he was telling is that it all starts when it's not the, even the we and them, but we or them. Right. So if it's just a matter of survival, then when you think that actually there's no choice, it's them or us, so they have to be eliminated. And actually there's a number of cases of genocides we can see, and it's exactly that. I mean, the Khmer Rouge have been so much involved in that uh, sure. part, uh, but you can see that in, uh, in Rwanda, you can see that in so many other genocides, where the rhetorics at that time of the hatred is this, is we or them. The in group and the out group. Right. So yeah. Okay. Let's let's switch gears for a second. Yes. You mentioned earlier boundary spanning. <laughs> yes. It sounds some. It sounds like something you would do like in a gymnastics event or something. I don't know what it means. What exactly does it mean? And um, why is it so important? Why what? Why is it so important? So what does it mean? Okay. Yes. Why is it important? There's a number of things. We never reason. So first of all, how to summarize? How how to explain what would be the interest of boundary spanning? Um, Basically, if we look at uh, most of the issues that we see in the world now, some that we call, you know, the famous uh, wicked issues, those so intractable issues, so uh, uh, complex issues, it's absolutely clear that there's no way that there will be one person or one institution that can solve that problem. Got it. Because it's too complex, too difficult. So you will need to have a, a consortium or a federation of expertise, of specialties, of people. Of a, Now, 
This is a very special leadership to bring, to federate those efforts and to bring these people together. Now, if we want to see from another perspective, I, I was teaching at, at one stage project management then program management. So from project management, you're already moving to one step higher with program management. In a program can have many different projects, right? But then comes the partnership management, which is way more complicated because you may very well have to lead a partnership of people on whom you have no authority, right. which is a major difference between a project manager and a program manager. Right. So project manager, a program manager, you can give orders to your staff, okay, you check. But here, you may be called to federate and to lead a partnership of experts that actually may be more recognized than you, may be actually more graded, more ranked, more whatever. And, and yet... You need to make sure that all these people are working together to solve that problem. That is what the boundary spanner is doing. Got it. And so it requires a whole set of soft skills in brokering, conflict uh, negotiation, uh, uh, resolution, negotiation, communication, you name it. It's uh, trust building and everything. So it's a very, very uh, delicate. And why I find that so important? First, because... Now, those issues that we are confronted most, uh, most of the time are becoming increasingly complex. So you do need to have more and more of this type of partnership of people who have different um, uh, culture, language, uh, uh, re regulation, etc. So it's, it's something that is absolutely indispensable. And it requires also another thing that I believe is extremely uh, important now is all this aspect of emotional intelligence. And... Uh, now all employers will tell you that actually they they value much more the EQ of their candidates than the IQ right. and the grades. <clears throat> right. So that's a, a little bit of, a, <laughs> in a nutshell, <laughs> what the boundary spanner is doing. Got it. So it's interesting because if in, in this room, if you look, there's definitely some boundary spanning already going on and right. also some cultural differences. We were joking before we started recording, right? Yes. I'm an enthusiast. It's a very American thing to be an enthusiast. Good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the one part of me that I simply cannot get rid of. Good. But then Daniel's Australian and you're French. Yeah. So too cynical. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I won't make a value judgment. And that's the other thing about me as well. Is I won't make a value judgment about what your idiosyncrasies are. I will just expose my own. Right. With the knowledge that you know what yours are <laughs> and that Daniel knows what his are as well. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So on those kind of soft skills you're talking about now, yeah. Do you see you yourself bringing them to your students at Tamasad at the moment? Are they something which is important that the students develop or you're giving attention to? Or is Definitely. Um, that's for sure what I'm trying to put in my own courses. Yes. I'm not so sure yet with my with all my colleagues. Uh, but I would definitely say that this is something that universities should take very seriously. Mm. Uh, and this is not something that universities are very good in. They are very good, you know, in all this academic and grading and all these things. But when it comes to really develop uh, uh, emotional intelligence, it's extremely difficult. And also because it's not easy. It does, uh, it does take... Uh, I'm doing that through games sometimes. So one game that I use, and actually it's very funny you are talking about that because I'm, I'm doing that tomorrow. Uh, teaching again boundary spanning tomorrow and there's one game that I like very much <clears throat> and but I don't know if I, if I should say it here then after when people hear it they will not fall in that game <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's really interesting so basically I'm splitting the class in four groups and I'm giving them a, a, how do you call that a, a 
count uh, deck, you know, a whole a deck of cards. Huh? A deck of a cards. A deck of cards, right. And I give them the rule of the game, and I say to each group, I say, okay, you have to learn the rule of the game perfectly. I give you 15, 20 minutes, and be ready, because there will be a tournament very soon. Okay, so they do that. I check they learn well. They have to play, 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 until they're really sure they understand the whole game. Then I bring them all together, and I say, mind you, there is one more rule now, is that you have absolutely no right to communicate and to talk and not write anything. So once the game starts... Once the tournament starts, and even before, when they go back in the room, they cannot talk together and during the game. So, and then I take from each group and I start to I start mixing them all, all the groups. And then they start the tournament in four different places. Then something happened. And you see, it's unbelievable what you see. So it was very funny because, for instance, our Afri- my African students, they were just bursting in laugh. Some uh, were, the, the Asian were frowning and looking like something wrong and I even have one American student who just banged the door the the, the table and and she threatened you know her friends but you know without speaking and so there was something going on here so I let that go for something like 15 minutes then of course I stopped the whole thing and as usual you know when you do this kind of game the most important is the debriefing so I said what happened here and uh, and it was really interesting because there's a full projection so some people say some cheated or some never, never not, were not able to remember the rules, or whatever, full projection. And some, of course, understood. They said, no, no, but I think we were not all having the same rules. Right. And I said, you're right. So the game is that when you distribute the rules, it's the same game, but slightly different for each group. So when you know someone thing, he gains and he takes the cards, the other say, hey, it should be me, but he cannot talk. So I said, you realize here is that you, when, when you're working and in boundary spanning, you're working with people who you cannot communicate with because they may have different language, different culture. they have different culture, they have different working culture, they have different rules, they have, and that's it. And you see how emotionally you can be affected yeah. by having to deal with people who have all these different mm-hmm. and you cannot communicate. So uh, normally they enjoy that. <laughs> that is a great thing, actually. Sure. Learning through play. That's a great experiment. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just wondering if you bring these kind of activities to the summer camp that you're okay. working on? So the summer camp is completely different. The summer camp is, although there is indeed a lot of uh, common points, mm-hmm. the summer camp is a uh, uh, summer camp that we have, um, we sign an MOU with the University of California, and we receive about 30 students every year from the University of California. How, who, how long is the summer camp in? It's two months. Uh, including no, but I mean, how long is the partnership with Tamasa University? Uh, now I think we are at our seventh year. Okay, so it's been going on for yes. a while. Oh, yes. It's been okay. it's, uh, and it's, again, there are young uh, students, undergraduates, uh, most of them, mostly in the medical field. Uh, but they want to now get into, uh, they want to discover public health. And um, and our summer course is actually public health, but more specifically border health uh, and uh, migrant health. Migrant so where health. is the summer camp held? So it's in Mesot, on, okay. on the Thai-Cambodian border. And, and they, it goes, uh, so first they stay in Bangkok for uh, about two weeks where they have cultural orientation and they have also a whole set of academic courses on border health, public health, global health migrants, uh, human rights, so a whole set of courses uh, delivered by a number of, uh, of professors uh, from Tamasat, but also from outside, guest lecturers a lot from the UN, from NGOs, from foundation, etc. And then, uh, when, and they also meditation, we also include meditation, because they go through such an emotional roller coaster that they have to get ready. And then after we go to Mesot, 
same thing. We have a little bit of a briefing for their field, uh, field immersion. And then we have home state. So they stay in uh, ethnic minorities, Karen, Kareni, uh, Shan, uh, uh, Burmese uh, minorities, mm -hmm. sometimes in very poor conditions. Mm -hmm. But we do investigate that before. And safety is okay. But uh, it is extremely poor. So they are very much out of their comfort zone. Some of them are deadly scared before it starts. Mm -hmm. And actually, at the end of this summer course, Not only they said that they have learned a lot about uh, public health and uh, border health and migrants' health and everything, but what they all say most and foremost is they say, "Wow, we learned so much about ourselves." Ourselves. So it was, it's a huge um, experience for them in terms of uh, getting out of their comfort zone and improving their emotional intelligence. Indeed. Well, I was going to say that it seems like. It's one of the core skills that would be developed yes. through the, this kind of camp. Yes, so that's not for nothing that actually yeah. I'm trying to include yeah. that. And actually this year for the first time, because they keep saying that all the time, say, oh, it changed me and everything. I say, okay, now I need to see whether there's a way to measure that. So mm -hmm. I looked through, right. I found mm -hmm. some uh, rapid self-assessment of emotional intelligence and I asked them to uh, voluntarily Uh, to pass that test before to do the homestay mm. and have to do the homestay. Right. Mm. And the results are quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to see those results anonymized to find out what the change in the students' um, perceptions were. Yes. Mm. So we're working now on the conclusion. The problem I have this year is that because I made it a volunteer, mm. I did not have too many who gave me the, the second one. Okay. So next year, I mean this year, I will probably do it uh, in 2019. Sorry, I will do it mandatory. Mm. Always, of course, confidential, uh, anonymous, etc. I, I have some, uh, how do you call it, random generated code to replace the name to make sure that nobody can recognize, etc. Right. But and then we'll do a more in-depth analysis. But in the same time, we also ask them to fill a journal every day mm -hmm. uh, to write their journal. And this journal is extremely rich because they really, really write all their emotion, what they leave. And so we're also doing analysis of this journal on, on a pure uh, confidential uh, basis what we can draw from what they learn and how they, how do they proceed, you know, in getting beyond that comfort zone and how do they learn and which way. Very interesting. Right. Now it's focused on border health, so that's what yes. you're yes. working on um, the Thai Myanmar border at Mesot. Um, you have some plans to expand this camp to include other issues or other... Uh, yes, I'm glad you asked that because it's indeed working so well that we feel it might be worth expanding mm -hmm. and we do have some demands from uh, University of Sydney and some uh, uh, other universities in Asia including also in Europe also so um, and my dream would be to back now to boundary spanning is to teach students how to um, uh, apprehend complexity and indeed develop those boundary spanning skills so my dream now is to compose the study teams of the student of students from full diversity. So they are medical doctors, architects, um, agronomists, you know, right. you name it. And my dream will be to have a whole set of teams like that that are fully uh, diverse and they will go in the village, the same, full immersion. We will still keep public health because it's actually quite an easy thing to grab. Mm -hmm. We will keep public health as the main theme, 
but they will all look at the same topic from their own perspective. And every evening they will work together and they will see to what extent architecture, agronomy, or whatever is also contributing to that right. problem solution, problem right. resolution. So, so this is the, the, the next next step. We really want to expand. And at that case, we will not have to remain in the, on the border. It can be anywhere in Thailand. Why not even expand to Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, wherever? Mm-hmm. But the uh, next step would be probably to move now to some other Thai provinces. So in just as a way to sort of tie all this together in your 30-something years of experience living outside of your home country, doing the human rights stuff, teaching the students about their own biases and perspectives, when you look at this from a social innovation perspective, right, what do you see now that needs the most development? Like where is that place where you're really trying to focus? Well, I would guess now with, with my own uh, background and uh, if I want to tap on my background and, and not a specialist on social innovations but what I would see is that in the global health for instance right. um, where social innovation where I would see social innovation very often is in the global fund you know I'm, I'm part of the global fund I'm expert to the global fund mm-hmm. uh, so as such I will have to go every three six months uh, for, for a mission there so what exactly is the global fund ok so, so the global fund is a uh, UN like uh, it's almost have a, a, a UN status. Uh, uh, it's a UN like organization that was created quite recently. So it's quite impressive to see how uh, this type of organization have developed in such a, a small uh, period. So it was basically, I think, created in 2002, if I remember correctly. And, um, and basically, it is to ensure that we have the sufficient resource to fight against the three main killer diseases in the world which are HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. So, um, and what I like with the Global Fund, I have to say, is that um, they really, really try to be as innovative as they can to be efficient. Their only one objective is to make sure that we cut (laughs) that mortality and morbidity of these three diseases, because that's the key indicators of their success, and if they fail, they will simply not get any funding anymore from those governments and wherever sources. Is there any example that comes to mind in terms of an innovation they've recently implemented? to achieve these goals? Yes, definitively. I'm trying to think of... Uh, of which. Yes, for instance, a typical example, which I think is, uh, is to the credit of the Global Fund, is that the Global Fund, in their procedure, impose, but in a, in a nice way, but they impose a procedure for each country who wanted, uh, that wanted to submit a, a, a proposal, a funding proposal, to establish a country coordinating mechanism. And in this mechanism, you should have representation of all stakeholders, including people who are affected by the disease. So you cannot have a meeting at that country level, where normally it's only the technocrats and uh, the Ministry of Health officers and all those uh, uh, officers who will decide for the whole country and the patient and everything. You cannot have any decision taken for the Global Fund for this proposal unless all those, including people who are affected by the disease, are taking part of the decision-making. Mm. So it, it, it's a, it was a major move in many, many countries, including China, for instance, right. because in many countries, those uh, patients were stigmatized, and it was extremely difficult to integrate them and to, to be publicly here, you know, in, the, in, the, in those meetings and decision-making. And so it took some years, but now it's fully integrated, and it's accepted. And then you see an impact in terms Definitely. of... Definitely. 
Definitely. Once people who are extremely motivated because that's their own life right. that is at stake, I can tell you they will not let things go that will not that will be unacceptable and the wrong mm. priority in the budgeting and all these things. Yeah. It definitely has some impact. Mm. Yes. So I guess it's interesting. A lot of what we are looking at, especially through this podcast, is um, how different stakeholders, especially the private sector, can include. Um, their own stakeholders more inclusively in their decision-making. So it was one of the questions I had, I guess, before um, we started this podcast today was, you know, based on your humanitarian background, what maybe lessons we could take out from apply to the, the private sector in terms of including um, being more inclusive, listening to a greater variety of voices, I'm not sure I will answer directly your question. But, but I think I, you've answered yes, it. Yes, exactly. You yeah. already have answered it. I think that's the point that Daniel's trying to make is that... Yes, but I, I was, your question actually, for me, it, it rings another bell. It's the one of uh, CSR. Mm. Yes. And I, and I think this is really interesting. You know, the corporate social responsibilities because I believe there's so much that could be done through that if it was, of course, uh, implemented as... It's called, you know, it's right. true corporate social responsibility instead of just being a PR. You know? Right, so I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of CSR yes. for the exact reason that you just mentioned. Yes. And that is, if CSR is implemented in a way that's actually socially responsible, well, then it's a boon to society. It's yes. part of a secular change, a phrase that I like to use, that's taking place in the world. I think, frankly, it's very difficult to bolt on CSR later. It has to be part of your original DNA. So if you look at when a company starts, it's just like diversity. You can't have a, um, a homogeneous group of people work in a particular way for five or six years and then start bringing diverse entities into it and have it become diverse. If not for the only reason, then because those diverse entities are not going to want to join a group that's already homogeneous. But if you have a heterogeneous group at the beginning where it's just a whole bunch of different stakeholders with different perspectives and different views, when you try to bring in the next different view, they're comfortable because they're looking around the sort of theoretical table and saying, I think I can get along here because nobody here is the same. Yes. And CSR actually looks to me the same way. And that is, if you take a company like, like how does a BAT do CSR? <laughs> right? How do they bolt that on later? Not to pick on one company in particular, but if you've always been behaving in a certain way, Good, bad, or indifferent. How do you bolt on CSR hours? I think it's a rabbit hole. And one well, that I don't really I, maybe, because for me, I, I would see the link between actually humanitarian work, civil society, and CSR. Mm. And the link is it's very easy. It, it, it's in some ways simple, but if you look at the numbers of NGOs working all over the world for so-called development or humanitarian assistance, how many are actually working on consumers' protection? Almost none. Very, very few. Why am I saying that? It's because at CSR, there's absolutely no leverage for whoever is dealing with CSR in a company. You know, they will just say, okay, you're just a PR guy, you, you do your little orphanage or whatever. But if there's a strong civil society, you know, like in French, there's a term I like very much, we call it consumacteur. It's not, it's not consumers, it's consumacteurs. So it means you are both a citizen and a consumer. So you're really responsible in your consumption. Right. And, and why I, I think it's extremely important is that once you have very strong consumers protection civil society bodies, then you give the sufficient leverage for the CSR officer 
within a corporate to say, listen, if we don't get our act together, they're going to boycott us or they're going to act. But that does not exist. There's nowhere, even when I was working in Vietnam, I was thinking of that on a personal basis, not in my work. I was with the DB at the time. So I was thinking maybe I could help the consumer's uh, protection. I tried to contact them. Absolutely no. There's absolutely nothing that was working. And I don't know any NGOs who are working on that. And yet, if you look at, unfortunately, the world, the way it goes, we are more considered as consumers than citizens. Right. Right, and that's one of the reasons why that becomes very difficult to deal with because if you're a consumer by definition, you're already approving the products that are being developed by those corporations, and if they try to turn that around from a CSR perspective and then do consumer protection, it's anathema. <laughs> anyway, this has been a really great discussion, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. Daniel, thank you so no, much thank for, you for, for participating. participating. Thank you, Stefan. Thank, thank, thank you. you, too. All right, thank you. That was awesome. We'll have to do it again. Okay. Yeah, there's so many other topics we could do. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Stefan for that great session. It was an interesting point that he raised that in order to make real impact, it often requires a power shift and a cultural change to give voice and power to the people that are best positioned to enact change. Certainly leaving us all with some food for thought. Now, if you made it this far, Thanks for listening all the way through. We hope that you enjoy the show just as much as we enjoy recording it. We share this episode along with other titles from the Startup 42 Media brand exclusively via our Facebook page. So if you haven't done so already, check out Startup 42 Media on Facebook and join our ever-growing community. Until next time, this was your weekly episode of the Impact Innovation Podcast by Startup 42 Media.